Well, over the course of the past 100 years, a division has arisen within Christianity. It does not amount to a schism, but it's a difference in practice and theology. And this divides centers on the topic of spiritual gifts. But not just any spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts are at the center of this debate. For a couple of weeks now, we've been progressing through the book of 1 Peter, and we've been studying spiritual gifts from chapter 4, 10 through 11. Spiritual gifts, in case you have not been with us, are supernatural abilities or divine enablements given by God through the Holy Spirit to all believers for the purpose of building up the church, the body of Christ. These spiritual gifts are not the same thing as natural talents or skills, but are special God-given abilities. And Peter lists two categories of spiritual gifts, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, which we studied last week, gave several examples of each. Some of the speaking gifts include the gift of evangelism, teaching, exhortation. Some of the speaking gifts include helps, showing mercy, administration, and giving. In this regard, Christians are not really divided. The Bible's teaching and present-day usage of these speaking and serving gifts is not hotly debated. But the Bible also mentions some other spiritual gifts, notably in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, which not all Christians agree upon. And these would include, for instance, the gifts of prophecy, healing, working miracles, and speaking in tongues. Historically, the church has believed these special sign gifts, or miraculous gifts as they've been termed, to have passed away with the closing of the canon. But like I said, in the past hundred years, some Christians have thought them to return. From Pentecostals to Charismatics, many Christians today all around the world believe these spiritual gifts are still in operation. Now, how these gifts are expressed widely varies. Today you have, of course, the the radical fringe. These people have little regard for Scripture. They're overrun by experience, and they exercise the gifts totally out of accord with the New Testament teaching. I'm sure you've seen images of, of Christians gathered, and they're seemingly just out of control. People call them the holy rollers because they're falling on the floor, rolling, barking, leaping, yelling, screaming, convulsing, all because they've been slain in the Spirit, Others are just screaming at the top of their lungs or shouting utterances of, of syllables. You can't really make it out. They're, they're speaking in tongues, they, they say. Even if these miraculous gifts like tongues did exist today, this is not at all how they were used in the New Testament. Paul warns against such a, a frenzied and out-of-control worship assembly. But that's just the radical fringe. In addition, though, there, there are some who are just outright frauds, those who want to cash in on all the people exposed by their unguarded emotionalism. In the 1980s, famed evangelist Peter Popoff claimed to to heal sick people and to prophetically receive personal details about them. But he was exposed. All the while, he was receiving a radio transmission in his ear from his wife, who was relaying to him information about people in the crowd, which was gathered by staffers. He's also exposed to have planted his staff into the crowd to give him wheelchairs or a crutch, and then he brought them on stage to miraculously heal them. Many who fall under the general charismatic umbrella but are better known for their involvement in the Word of Faith movement or prosperity gospel movement have also been exposed for their false teachings and false motives. These mostly televangelists who pray off their audience, they, they promise healings, 
miracles, financial blessings, all, of course, if you just send them a check. You have to sow the seed of money to them, of course, if you want to reap God's health and wealth blessings. Of course, countless numbers don't receive their health and wealth, yet these televangelists rake in multi-million dollar profits. They live in mega mansions, they own private jets, fleets of Rolls Royces. Even the U.S. Senate knew this was corrupt in 2007, investigated Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Eddie Long, Joyce Meyer, and Randy and Paula White for a corruption scandal. Sadly, corruption like this is not foreign from the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. The moral failure and disqualification of their leaders has reached critical levels. It seems like every year you hear about some new high-profile leader almost always from charismatic circles falling prey to another sexual or financial sin. Now, granted, look, I understand all denominations, all branches of Christianity have their fallen leaders. No, no one's perfect here. But even writers for Charisma Magazine, a, a charismatic magazine, have acknowledged that for the charismatic movement, it's really reached an epidemic level. It, it's a big problem. In 1986, Jimmy Swagger revealed the adulterous affairs of fellow televangelists Marvin Gorman and Kim Baker. In turn, they hired a private investigator to dig up some dirt on him. And they found that he was hiring prostitutes. He admitted it. He stepped down for a year. But he came back into ministry. Three years later, though, he was arrested by police again for prostitution, for hiring prostitutes. Amy Semple McPherson, the founder of the Foursquare Church, was an adulteress who faked her own death to run off with her lover. Lonnie Frisbee, who was involved in the rise of the Calvary Chapel and Vineyard movements, was later disowned for secretly being homosexual. He died from AIDS in 1993. Sadly, the list goes on and on and on if we had time. At the same time, though, don't get me wrong, please. Not, not all charismatics by a long stretch, which I'm using as a very broad term, are like this. That's not true. Though many false teachers and false teaching circulates the charismatic world, there are several who are truly godly, who truly love the Lord, who truly love the gospel. And they're not driven by experience. They uphold nothing but the word of God. And they're dear brothers and sisters in the faith who still believe in the miraculous gifts. And though we don't share their views, I know people like this, and I'm so thankful for their love for the Lord, for scripture, for the word. And I know one day, whether in this life or the next, we'll all arrive at, at the true understanding of God's word, which is what we're after. Now, all this being said, for many Christians, they don't know how to make sense of all this. A lot of people are simply confused. What does the Bible really say about these gifts? And what, what are these you know, charismatic people, what, what do they really believe? What do they really practice? And have these miraculous gifts really ceased or, or not? For most, they, these are huge questions, and they don't even know where to begin in attempting to answer them. They're just lost. They're confused. Today, I want to help you get some answers. Last week, we finished studying spiritual gifts from 1 Peter chapter 4, but we never talked about these miraculous gifts because Peter doesn't bring them up. At the same time, though, even the short time I've been here, people have been asking me about them, that people want teaching on them. They want to know the basics there's so much confusion surrounding these gifts. Can we at least get some clarity on, on the issue? And because of this, I decided to deviate from our normal First Peter study just for a time. 
to spend the time we need to, to go ahead and give you just some basic teaching on these issues. The task is pretty huge. Not only do you have to get caught up to speed on what charismatics actually believe in and practice, but then you have to scour the scriptures to, to evaluate it. It's a big task. It did a lot of research. But for this reason, since the topic is so huge and there's so much confusion to, to cut through, I want to be careful. So this is going to be a, a two-parter. This week and next, just unavoidable. But it's necessary, and I think you'll appreciate the extra time spent really to get a handle on these miraculous gifts. Now, to get a little more specific, the, the time we're going to spend will split up into three parts. First, I'll give you a brief history of the charismatic movement. That's what we'll start. Second, I will tell you what, what they believe and what they practice. And then third, hopefully in a, in a gracious and and loving manner, I will give you ten reasons why we at Breen Bible Church and many others do not believe that miraculous gifts are for today. It sounds simple enough, but we've got a lot of ground to cover, so follow along, stay sharp, maybe take some notes, it might help you to follow along. But here's where we're going to start, this part one, a brief history of the charismatic movement. Just get you acquainted with what's going on here, who are we talking about here. Number one, a brief history of the charismatic movement. Let me say first off, I'm using the term charismatic in a very broad sense as a catch-all term, but that's not fully accurate. In reality, there's actually three different groups today that you need to be familiar with. It's okay to use the term charismatic as, as the overarching term for simplicity, but if you want to really get to know them, there's three groups that you have to know. And so let me, let me tell you about them. The first of which is Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism, I'm sure you've heard of. I want to take you back to the turn of the century. Not 2000, 1900. That's when at Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, the modern tongues movement started. Charles Parham challenged his students to look for a baptism of the Holy Spirit that took place after salvation. Traditionally, the church has always believed the baptism of the Holy Spirit, mentioned in Scripture, took place at salvation. God saved a person, and he regenerated them through the Spirit, and then he empowered them through the Spirit all at the same time. But throughout the late 1800s, people were looking for for a second experience. Christians started to believe there should be a greater experience after salvation, the baptism of the Spirit, where they would be filled with power, just like the apostles were filled with power in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's something we'll look at later. Anyway, Parham told his students to seek out this baptism of the Spirit, and he told them that when it comes, it will come with speaking in tongues. That will be the associated sign. Well, at 7 p.m. on New Year's Day, 1901, one of his students, Miss Agnes Osman, supposedly received the Spirit and spoke in tongues, unable to speak in English for the next three days. Parham believed this to be the restoration of that Pentecostal power from the book of Acts here and now. And he began to spread his teaching and these experiences throughout the country, and he influenced many others. A couple years later, a man named William, William Seymour, he came under Parham's teaching. Seymour then moved to Los Angeles, and while leading a small church at the Azusa Street Mission, on April 9th, 1906, Seymour himself spoke in tongues. 
And this sparked what has been called the Azusa Street Revival. This event is seen as the beginning of American Pentecostalism. The Azusa Street Revival received a ton of attention. The LA Times covered it. You can go back and read the original articles. It's very interesting. Azusa Street became this Pentecostal mecca where people from all over the country traveled to find out what was going on and to get in on, on some of these miraculous gifts. This revival only lasted three years, but the teachings from it and the experiences really spread throughout the country, even into northern Europe. Pentecostal churches started popping up all over the country. At this time, the Assemblies of God Church was founded in 1914, and the International Church of the Four Square Gospel began in, in 1927. You may have heard of some of these churches still around today. As an interesting side note, Parham, you know, the guy who started it all in Kansas, he himself visited Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival one time, but Parham rejected it. He thought they went way too far in their fanaticism with tongues. They were chattering and jabbering and sputtering. They weren't speaking any language. Parham rejected that. He also didn't like the fact that Seymour allowed and integrated seances and the occult into his church services. Yet while Parham rejected the Azusa Street Revival, Parham himself was eventually excluded from the movement he started due to his reputation for sexual immorality and homosexuality. Anyway, this movement called Pentecostalism spread and it grew throughout the 1900s. Pentecostalism became its own denomination of sorts, largely because people from other denominations rejected still the miraculous gifts. That changed, however, in the 1950s and 60s. Remember, I told you there there were three groups you need to know. The first is the Pentecostals. The second now is the, the Charismatics. The Charismatics. The Charismatic movement represents the penetration of of Pentecostalism into the mainline denominations. There aren't huge differences between Pentecostals and Charismatics. They're not vast differences. It's just that Pentecostals, they're kind of their own group, while Charismatics, they really cut through denominational lines. They, They can be found in all churches. The official start date of the movement is seen to be April 3rd, 1960, because on that date, an Episcopal priest, a mainline denomination, an Episcopal priest, Dennis Bennett, of St. Mark's Church in Van Nuys, California, announced in the pulpit that he had been baptized in the Spirit and went on to speak in tongues. It's kind of interesting. All these things seem to start in Los Angeles, by the way. You'll see. It keeps going on. The church did not accept this, though. Bennett resigned. But this was a very public event, very influential. And many see this as the beginning of a new movement of the spirit, a charismatic movement, and it spread. Contrary to Pentecostalism, this movement was able to infiltrate the major denominations and really take roots in America. And it it did. It spread throughout. This era saw the beginning of the Trinity Broadcasting Network in 1973, and the rise of televangelists like Oral Roberts, Kenneth Hagin, Pat Robertson, and many more. In the 80s, the Word of Faith movement and the Health and Wealth movement also sprung up out of the charismatic movement. All of these still pretty much exist today. Now, another shift took place in the 80s. A third group emerged. Remember, I told you there were three you need to know. First group, the Pentecostals. Second group, the Charismatics. The third group is called... The third wave. The third wave. The first wave being Pentecostalism. 
The second wave being the charismatic movement. Now they just go by the third wave, the, the third movement of the Spirit. The third wave movement was composed of mainline evangelicals who believed that the miraculous gifts were for today, but they didn't want to be associated with some of the extremes of Pentecostals and Charismatics. Third wave proponents, for instance, they rejected several of the classical Pentecostal beliefs. They rejected that teaching that the baptism in the Spirit took place after salvation and that tongues was the necessary sign of, of that. They rejected that, but they still believed that all the gifts were for today. The third wave movement is seen to have begun when John Wimber began the Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California in 1982. Wimber, in turn, influenced C. Peter Wagner of Fuller Theological Seminary, who went on to teach that signs and wonders were needed in evangelism. This was the first time a major American institution started teaching these things. Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel churches are usually associated with the third wave movement as well. So these are the, the three groups I told you about, the three movements that it's just good for you to know about. Hopefully this already brings you a little bit of clarity, clarification, just getting, getting you some bearings as to who we're talking about here or some of their differences. I mentioned earlier, it, it's okay, and I tend to call the whole group charismatics, lump them under one term just for the sake of simplicity, and that's okay, but like I said, if you want to get more precise, there are these three different groups, each coming from a slightly different history and a slightly different angle. Now, before we move on, though, I want to introduce you to another viewpoint called cessationism. Have you heard of that before? In contrast to these three groups and their views is a viewpoint called cessationism. From the word, obviously, to cease. Cessationisms, or cessationists believe that the miraculous gifts ended with the ministry of the New Testament apostles and prophets and the closing of the canon, which, in other words, you know, the first century A.D. This is the view we hold here at this church. It's been the historic view of the church, including the Reformation. Now, keep this in mind, a few things. Cessationists do not deny the Holy Spirit's power. The Spirit is still powerfully and actively working in the world, doing God's will, and the spiritual gifts are hugely important. We, we talked about them last week. Cessationists also do not deny miracles and healings. God still heals people all the time. God still does miracles all the time. Every time someone gets saved, that's a miracle. The question is this. Does God still specifically gift individuals to be able to perform healings, miracles, and the like, like he did in the first century? To this, we would answer no, and that's really the difference here. Does God still heal people through prayer? Absolutely. Does God still use healers anymore like he did in the first century? We would say no. That's the difference. And the same goes for all the other miraculous gifts. That's what the divide between these two groups. So there's some background. You have these three groups, all in one way or another, believing that the, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, are still for today. This contrasts with, I guess you could say, Mainline or the rest of Christianity who believes the gifts ended in the first century A.D. Now, that's the first topic I told you we'd talk about, a brief history of the charismatic movement. The second topic we want to cover now, a brief theology of the charismatic movement. I want to tell you a little bit more about 
what the charismatics believe. And again, I'm using that as a broad term. What they really believe, what they really practice. It all starts and centers on this idea of the baptism in or by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13 reads, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. It's in Scripture, the baptism of the Spirit, in several places. To Pentecostals and Charismatics, though, this baptism of the Spirit doesn't take place at salvation. Like you might expect, it, take place, it takes place after salvation. They acknowledge that Christians, all Christians receive the Spirit in a limited sense at salvation. But then after that, you need another experience. You need a greater filling, a baptism of the Spirit, whereby you can achieve a higher spirituality. You can receive God's power like, like the apostles did. This baptism is to be sought after, and most, not all of them, but most of them hold that it will always be accompanied by speaking in tongues. That's the evidence of this baptism of the Spirit. They teach all Christians should expect this and attain this. Now, you may wonder, you know, where are they getting this? Does this have any biblical precedent or, or what? And to this, they would point to Acts chapter 2. And why don't you turn there? Let's turn to a couple passages here. Acts chapter 2. That's the event of Pentecost, which is why they called themselves Pentecostals at first. Make your way to Acts chapter 2, beginning of the chapter. Now, just before this, chapter 2, Jesus, the resurrected, before he ascended, he told the disciples that they would be baptized by the Spirit. And when that happened, they would receive power from the Spirit. When the Spirit came upon them, they would be empowered. And this is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Well, we'll just read those verses. Explain this. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Talking about the disciples of Christ. And it's more than just the eleven, by the way. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Maxson, they, they take this passage, notably verse 4, and they make it normative for Christianity, meaning that this should be normal for us today. In other words, just like the disciples, they were already saved, but then they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit after the fact and began to speak in tongues. So the same should be for Christians today. All should expect and seek that this miraculous power the Holy Spirit brings and it should be accompanied by speaking in tongues. So this really is a foundational tenet to the to charismatic theology. Christians should expect some form of a, a second blessing after salvation. In addition to the blessing of salvation, there should come a second blessing, a second empowerment called the baptism of the Spirit. Indeed, they, they should seek after that. And once you get it, 
it will be accompanied by speaking in tongues. And the result of such a belief, however, is, is a two-tiered Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. Their belief immediately creates two categories of Christians. There are the haves and the have-nots. There are those who have been empowered by the Spirit and there are those who have not. It's just unavoidable. Because of this, some charismatics have looked down on non-charismatic Christians, seeing them as baby Christians, immature Christians, carnal Christians, less spiritual. And then for those in charismatic circles who have not experienced the gifts, there's this intense pressure to be baptized by the Spirit and speak in tongues. Otherwise, they're viewed as less spiritual, that they're always on the outside looking in until they get the baptism and start speaking in tongues. There's intense pressure created. And as you can expect, this has led to countless people who have left the charismatic church later admitting that they just they were faking it to fit in. There was just so much pressure, they just did what they did to fit in. Now, as a quick note, remember that, that third group, the third wave group? Technically, they reject this idea that the baptism of the Spirit happens after salvation and that it's accompanied by tongues. They say that's not true according to the Bible, and we would commend them for that. But they still believe in a special empowering of the Spirit that takes place after salvation. And the result is the same, that there are those who have that special power of the Spirit and there are those who do not. Either way, all these people therefore believe that because the Holy Spirit is working, just like he did in Acts chapter 2, Christians should expect all of the same miraculous gifts to be in operation today. The healing, the tongues, prophecy, so on. It, the Spirit's doing the same thing. We should expect the same gifts. Just as the Spirit empowered the apostles to prophesy, heal, and speak in tongues back then, so we should expect the Spirit to be doing the same thing today. And that's what they believe. Now, speaking of this, there are three gifts, really, that they, that they focus on. Prophecy, healing, and tongues. You could throw miracles in there, but most people lump that in with healing. So just for simplicity, prophecy, healing, and tongues. However, charismatics teach that the operation of these three gifts is different from what you find in the New Testament. For example, take prophecy. In the Old Testament and the New Testament... Prophecy was authoritative. It was infallible. Prophets spoke God's revelation directly. So if you disobeyed them, you were disobeying God. But not anymore. Now, they teach, prophecy, it's not authoritative. It's not infallible. It, it can be wrong. And furthermore, prophecy is not binding. It's a word from God, but it still has to be evaluated by Scripture. It can be wrong. For example, the teaching of Wayne Grudem is is right up the alley. Prophecy is it's changed. It's not the exact same as it was in the Old and New Testaments. Additionally, healing is not the same. In the New Testament, we see Jesus and the apostles healing people immediately, abundantly, dramatically, and undeniably. I mean, just think about it. Blind people were regaining their sight. Lepers were just instantly cleansed of their disease. Even the dead were being raised. But today, though, healings are not as immediate abundant, dramatic, or undeniable. Instead, they teach healing comes through the power of prayer, per James chapter 5. And they likewise believe that healers cannot heal at will. 
like the apostles did. They're restricted by just whatever God wills. Not quite the same as the apostles and prophets. Finally, tongues has changed as well. Charismatics, they admit that the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 consisted of people instantly speaking a real human language that they had never learned before. They admit that. In fact, all mention of tongues in the Bible, it's always of a real human language that someone didn't know. Now, though, charismatics argue for for another language, a heavenly language, a heavenly language form of tongues, which really is no language at all. Most, it just sounds like a, a string of syllables or consonants coming together. It's not really a language, but an utterance, uh, a heavenly tongue of angels, per 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Also, the focus of tongues centers more today on their usefulness as a private prayer language, contrary to being a sign for unbelievers like we see more in the New Testament. So in short, there, there are differences between the gifts then and now, and there are different differences between charismatic Christians and other Christians today. They believe in some form of a second blessing after salvation, whether that comes in the form of the baptism of the Spirit or just some special empowering. And the result is that believers are enabled to perform the miraculous gifts, similar to what we see in the New Testament, but not quite identical. That's the short end of it. That's a little bit of background on on the theology and the practice of the charismatic church. Now, so far... Our time has been spent getting you better acquainted with who Pentecostals and Charismatics really are and what they really believe. And that's necessary. You probably didn't know a lot of this. You need to get caught up to speed first and foremost. Now we want to turn our attention to that third topic I mentioned. We started with a brief history of the Charismatic movement and then a brief theology of the Charismatic movement. But that being said, many Christians still reject the beliefs and practices of these movements. And they claim they have good reason to do so. So why? What are these reasons? What are some of the reasons why many Christians reject these movements? That's going to lead us into our third and final topic, which is going to extend into next week. Namely, ten errors of the charismatic movement. Ten errors of the charismatic movement and why the miraculous gifts are not for today. It's just really one and the same. Ten Errors of the Charismatic Movement, and why the miraculous gifts are not for today. I understand entire books have been written on this, but I'm just going to do my best to capture and condense for you, really maybe a top ten list, ten important arguments against the charismatic movement, and really more so why the miraculous gifts are not for today, and why we believe what we believe. Number one, the first error, the first reason Charismatics get experience wrong. Charismatics get experience wrong. Let me explain what I mean by this, of course. Charismatics, by and large, fall into the error of placing their own personal experiences above the level of Scripture. What their experience tells them trumps them what the Bible tells them. Bible study takes a backseat to this quest for the Spirit's power. This is why up till now, there have been very few charismatic theologies, very few doctrines coming out of that their movement. 
Because it doesn't really matter. Who really needs Bible study when you have the Spirit's power? One Pentecostal writer said, quote, Truth divorced from experience must always dwell in the realm of doubt, end quote. That, that's a scary way of thinking right there. That, that type of thinking, it just opens the door to false teaching. If you ever hear someone say this, you know, I know the Bible says this, but I had this experience, dot, 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 and just, just run away. That's really how all false teaching starts. Or, or really, for some, it's more like this. I don't really know what the Bible says, but I had this experience, dot, dot, dot. Uh, usually, these movements stem from biblical ignorance. And that, that's the case. You know, how did these movements start in the 1900s? The history I gave you. Was it through careful Bible study? That, you know, the reformers, everyone else in the church just missed these verses? Was it through Bible study? No. It was through this quest for an experience. And did people then subject their experiences to the test of Scripture? And the answer again is no. You know, why bother? The experience was the desired end. That, that, that's it. Your average charismatic today, not, not all of them, for sure, but I think your average one, if forced to really examine him or herself, would have to admit that personal experience is the foundation of what they believe, not Scripture, not what the Bible says. And that's called mysticism. Several ex-charismatics have come out of these churches only to tell how truly experience-driven they were. People were just dominated by experience, flailing, yelling, screaming in tongues, and so on. All the while, the gospel was not taught. There was no real teaching or preaching of the word. It was just experience, the whole service. Now, certainly not every charismatic church is like that at all. But for those that are, that is, it's very dangerous. I have to say, though, don't get me wrong. Experience is good. Experience is not bad at all. Your worship should never be divorced from genuine emotion and experience. But experiences can deceive you, so how should you evaluate them? And the answer is scripture. Now, perhaps you, you really do have an experience. Maybe you really experience something. But how do you know it's, it's good? How do you know it came from God? Is it possible that your experience came from a demon? How do you think Pharaoh's magicians duplicated all of Moses' miracles? Or some of them, at least. You see, Scripture has to be the authority. At the end of the day, you have to decide what weighs more, God's Word or your experience. And what's going to win? If there's ever a conflict, if there's a conflict, what's going to win? Christians should be into experience, but the most authentic and meaningful experience comes in response to the truth. You read the Word, you see what God has done for you in Christ, and the truth creates in you a great experience of worship. Or maybe you're going through a trial, you're suffering. You read the Word. You read everything the Bible says about those who suffer and God's favor toward them, His blessedness on them, and, and His care for them all the while through. The truth then leads you to have this experience of peace amidst the suffering. You see, experience is great, and it should be there, but it stems from the truth first, not the other way around. Like Peter himself said in 2 Peter chapter 1, you know, he, he just had this amazing experience. He witnessed 
the transfiguration of Christ. He saw Christ in his glory. But he wanted to say, you know, forget about that. Because we got something better now. We have something more sure. The more sure word. And that's what we have. And it's better. We have the more sure word. It trumps experience. It's better than your experience. Because it's absolutely true. So the bottom line is this. Whatever you believe in practice, it better be Scripture-driven and not experience-driven. And for most charismatics, not all, but most, they've shown this not to be the case. This is really a, a fatal error. And this will become more evident as we progress. So number one, charismatics get experience wrong. I'll give you another reason, another error of the movement, another reason why the miraculous gifts are not for today. Number two, Charismatics get the purpose of the miraculous gifts wrong. Charismatics get the purpose of the miraculous gifts wrong. You have to understand that throughout history, the miraculous has been pretty uncommon. Even in the Bible, there's really only three periods of time where there is a great spike in miraculous activity. It's the time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. And that's it. All the other hundreds and, and thousands of recorded years of history in the Bible, there's really no record of, of major miraculous activity. It's not like every week someone was being raised from the dead in the Old Testament or someone was parting a sea or, or whatever. Even occasions of God visiting people or speaking to them are few and far between when you consider the, the vast number of years the Bible represents, at least recorded. The point is this, that the miraculous is not normal. It's not meant to be. When people saw the miraculous from the apostles or from Moses, whoever, they were always astonished. Why? Because it wasn't normal. That, that these things weren't happening all the time. That, that's why people were so amazed, because it, it wasn't ordinary. Only at key times has God enabled people to work miracles. Now, like I said, God works miracles and heals all throughout history, but only at key times has he used people and has he given people the power to do these themselves. Only at key times and for key reasons. So that begs the question, why? Why did God use certain people at certain times to perform miracles in the Bible? Why did he do that? What is the purpose of the miraculous gifts, is the question. And the answer, it's very clear, and it's very consistent all throughout the Bible. And I'll show it to you. The miraculous gifts were given by God as signs to authenticate his messengers. I'll say that again, and then I will show you. The miraculous gifts were given by God as signs to authenticate his messengers. The primary purpose of miracles is always to attest and validate God's spokesmen and get you to listen to them because they are speaking God's words. Giving the example of Moses. God visits Moses. The whole burning bush. He calls and commissions Moses to be what? His spokesman, both to Pharaoh and to the Israelites. He's to tell them God's truth. And he's to free the people. He's, just, he's spokesman number one. 
in the Old Testament. But in chapter 4, verse 1, right after the burning bush, Moses is a little concerned. And he says this. He asks God, you know, what if the people will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord does not appear to you. See, Moses knew. He's going to show up to the people, hey, God told me to tell you something. God wants me to free you. God told me this. They're going to say, says who? Why should we believe you? They're going to think he's crazy. Moses knew that people would doubt the experience he just had with God in the burning bush. Why should they believe him? So how did God respond to that question of Moses? God then enabled Moses to perform signs and wonders. He said, do this. Take your staff, throw it to the ground, and it will become a snake, a live snake. And he did so. And he said, grab it by the tail, pick it up again, it will turn back into a staff. And that was the first of three signs that God, right then, enabled Moses to do to show the people. What did God say? That way they will listen to you and believe you've come from me when they see the signs. They might believe that he is coming from and speaking for God. That was the purpose of the signs. Same goes for Pharaoh. God enabled Moses to work these major miracles, the ten plagues. God used Moses to do that. Why? So that Pharaoh would know that Moses is coming from and speaking for God. And that he better listen to Moses. He better listen to what this guy says because he's actually speaking for God. And these miracles prove it. Of course, Pharaoh didn't get the memo. His heart was hardened. But nonetheless, the point is that the signs were given to authenticate God's messengers. And guess what? The New Testament signs and wonders performed by Jesus and the apostles had the exact same purpose. And it's explicitly said in the New Testament. Read in scripture reading, you know, why did Jesus heal? Why did he turn water into wine? Why did he perform all those signs and wonders like we read, John 20, 30 through 31? These many other signs, or rather, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples. But, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Or listen also to Acts 2, verse 22. In fact, you're probably there if you're still in Acts. Peter, after the whole tongues episode, he gets up and he preaches about Christ, and he lets them know who Christ was. Acts 2, 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man what? A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, so on and so forth. What's he saying? He's preaching them to them about who Christ is. And he said, look, here's Christ, the Messiah, the, the Savior. And he was attested to by God through these signs and wonders, but you crucified him. You failed to see. The point, though, is that he knew that Christ himself, the, the real messenger of God, was attested to by these signs. Jesus himself was God's revelation. He was the true word of God. And as such, he came with attesting signs. And the same goes for the disciples who became the apostles. They were commissioned by Jesus himself to be his spokesmen, his representatives, right? 
And with that commission came the ability to perform signs and wonders. Why? To authenticate them as really coming from God and speaking for God. Let me show you one verse, Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there quickly if you can. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. He's talking about that message of salvation. He's going to mention how it's spoken by the apostles. Let's read this. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. He says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's talking about the apostles, the disciples. God also testifying with them, the apostles. How? Both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You see the association there. These gifts were given to testify of them that they are coming from God. You have to remember that God was making big changes with the church. He was transitioning from Israel to the church, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. These were big changes. Jesus himself promised that also that God would give a ton of new revelation through these apostles when Jesus left and the Spirit came. We have to ask yourself, you know, why? Why should all these Jews and later all these Gentiles believe this group of uneducated, uneducated fishermen? Why should they believe that these guys are really speaking all this new revelation from God, these big changes? Why should we believe these guys? Signs and wonders. God enabled them to perform these miracles to attest that they were coming from and speaking for God. And it worked, by the way. People believe them because of the signs. The miraculous gifts have other purposes, sure, but they were never detached from this main purpose of authenticating God's messengers. So what does that mean for the continuation of the gifts? Well, when God stopped giving new revelation, when the apostles all died off and the New Testament canon was closed, there was no longer a need for the sign gifts. God doesn't need or use spokesmen anymore because we have the finished record of those spokesmen. We've got the New Testament. And as such, the sign gifts passed out of use. In the future, get this, the sign gifts will return. In Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses during the tribulation period, they perform signs and wonders. But why? The exact same reason. The miracles attest and testify that they are God's real witnesses, and you better listen to them. It's the exact same purpose. It's actually very consistent with the cessationist position. And think about this. This is why, by the way, as time went on, the focus shifted, even the New Testament, away from prophecy and toward teaching as the normal life function of the church. Think about this. This is why the church is not to be run by prophets. The church is to be run by elders. This is also why elders are not required to be able to prophesy but they are required to be able to teach. That's a big deal. I mean, you'd really think that 
if prophecy and tongues are so important for the ongoing life of the church, that God would require, at the very least, the leaders to be able to do these things, but he doesn't. He requires them to teach. And that's because prophecy was not normative. It was for God's spokesmen. And when the new revelation stopped, so did these gifts. And the normal operation of teaching and preaching the word kicked into gear. And this is why we have all of these verses about teaching and preaching the word in Scripture. Charismatics, unfortunately, get this wrong. They get the purpose of the gifts wrong. They desire and use the miraculous gifts as an end in and of themselves. The gifts provide experience for them. They do not serve their biblical function of attesting to new revelation. If Charismatics truly understood the purpose of the gifts they would understand that they're simply not for today, that they have passed away. So this is the second major error in the charismatic movement. They get the purpose of the gifts wrong. And we're going to want to give you one more as we close our time here. It's very much related. Number three, charismatics get apostleship wrong. Charismatics get apostleship wrong. The New Testament apostles and, and prophets, they were very unique. The prophets were unique in calling. To be an apostle, you had to have witnessed the resurrected Lord with your own eyes, and then he had to directly commission you to be his representative. So clearly, no one fits that anymore today. No one has seen the risen Lord anymore. Also, apostles and prophets were unique in their function. They were God's direct spokesmen. Christ promised, he said, when the Spirit comes, you will be my what? My witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. They were his direct witnesses. That was their function. And in that regard, they, they were part of the foundation of the church. That's what Acts, or rather Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, And you are God's household, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you know something about foundations, you know that you just do it one time. You lay the foundation once, and you're done. You don't just keep doing it. You lay the foundation, you finish, then you start building the house. You're done. No more foundation. And so it is with the New Testament apostles and prophets. They belong to this foundational period of the church, and they helped lay that foundation. You may ask, how? It's not as if they were making up for some lack in Christ's work. No, Christ's work was complete, sufficient, finished. But God used the apostles and prophets to communicate God's finished work. They were his witnesses. God used them to reveal new truths. Like Ephesians 3.5 says, these mysteries were revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirits. They were the bearers of this new revelation. But once the foundation was laid and their testimony written down, when the New Testament canon was closed, the apostles and prophets passed away from the scene. And what do you think passed away along with them? Their associated sign gifts. 
as the apostles and prophets went, so went their gifts. And here's where the charismatics, unfortunately, go wrong. Most charismatics, except for the really extreme fringe ones, we're not talking about them, but most, they, they believe that the apostles are gone. They understand there's no more apostles today in the New Testament sense. But in contradiction, they believe the signs of the apostles and prophets are still here, detached from them. This violates the purpose of the gifts like we already saw, but this also violates the function of the apostles. The sign gifts were tied into the ministry of the apostles. There were no miraculous gifts apart from apostolic ministry. Let's listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 12.12. 2 Corinthians 12.12 just says this, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. This is Paul saying, look, here's my calling card. What's the calling card of the apostles? Why should you listen to them? Signs, wonders, miracles. They were given to this people on their ministry, like we already said, to attest of their reality. Every single miracle performed in the New Testament was done by an apostle or a prophet closely associated with the apostles with the apostles. There's no example of just your average Joe performing a miracle. There's no example. The sign gifts certainly were not normative such that everyone could expect to prophecy, heal, speak in tongues. They were given to the apostles and prophets only, again, authenticating them in their revelation. And when the apostles ceased to exist, which even the charismatics admit, so went with them their sign gifts. So here, just the bottom line here. Charismatics fail to understand that things, things today are not like they were then. Things today are not exactly like they were then. We should not expect church life in the book of Acts to be exactly like today. Because look, even they recognized that was part of the apostolic era. But that era is gone. There are no more apostles. The canon is closed. So already you have two major ministries of the Spirit that are done. And could there not be more? They fail to recognize that this means the associated gifts of the apostles and prophets are gone as well. Not everything from the early church is for today. Charismatics admit apostleship and the writing of Scripture are gone, but they they want to keep the associated sign gifts That's simply inconsistent and in error, as we would see. So recap. Charismatics, they get experience wrong, they get the purpose of the gifts wrong, and then they get the apostles wrong. These are three significant errors behind the charismatic movement. At the same time, these are three powerful reasons why the miraculous gifts, as as we see it, are not for today. We're going to end here for the sake of time, but there are seven more reasons to come, which we'll finish next week, and you don't want to miss it. But I do want to give you a final reminder. I spent a lot of time today refuting some errors found in the church. From time to time, you have to focus on the negative like this. It's, it's necessary. But I want to end on a positive note. Let's remember, the gospel is what saves And the gospel is what unites. And there will surely be charismatics and non-charismatics in heaven. These issues may cause a little division on earth, but still, we, we need to all be patient and loving with our charismatic brethren, 
just like we want them to be patient and loving with us and our disagreements. Especially those who cherish the true gospel, who love the word. I'm so thankful for them. I know many who truly love the Lord. They love the gospel. And I love them. I'm thankful for them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we all need God's grace to see his truth clearly. Otherwise, we're all going to be blind. So, so pray. Pray for them and then pray for yourself that God would give us all the grace we need to, to know him, to see him clearly, to get, to get it right, because that's what we need. And if, if you're ever interacting with someone who believes differently than you, then have a measure of grace and patience with you in your discussion. Because at the end of the day, like I said, we all rely on God's grace anyway. Well, a lot more to come next week. Hopefully you'll, you'll be there. Stick around. But now let me pray and close this out. Lord God, we thank you for this time the Word. And now we talk about some disagreements we have with other brethren in the faith. And though that may exist, Lord, we want to just still unite together under the gospel and under our Savior, Jesus Christ. Surely we may not get it all figured out in this life because we rely on you to expose the truth to us. But nonetheless, Lord, we look forward to the time when we will all believe the same thing, all worship the same Savior, all enjoy him in heaven forever, and really be united in in the fullness of truth. For now, may we be gracious with those who disagree with us. But at the same time, Lord, we, we want the truth. And may at the very least we put your word first and foremost when it comes to that truth. Experience is good. May we be... Uh, given great experiences of worship in you, Lord, but help us to be driven first and foremost by the word here at Berean Bible Church. We, we want to know you and see you at for who you really are. We want to get these things right. So we pray as time goes on, you would reveal yourself and your truth to us more and more. In your name we pray. Amen.